I believe in God's providence. The topic of today's sermon was about God as our shepherd. And on Thursday, as Ryan and I sat in Tracy's hospital room, I got to read Psalm 23 to her and to her family in full confidence that though she walked through the valley of the shadow of death, she was not alone. That Christ was holding her hand. And that now, as we sang in that song, her eyes are open to the wonder of the true glory of God. And um, it's hard to preach a sermon when you're so sad and when it feels like all you want to do is talk about Tracy and who she was and what she meant, but I'm also pretty sure that right now, standing in the glory of Christ, she would tell us, talk about Christ. Remind people of the true object of worship. Remind people of my Savior. Remind people of my good shepherd who even when I couldn't hold on, grabbed hold of me and brought me through the valley of the shadow of death. So that's what we're going to do today. Like we do every week, we're going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, of God as our shepherd, who leads us beside still waters, who renews our soul and gives us life both now and life eternal. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, would you open to the prophet Micah? If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there are copies at the ends of the rows. Just ask somebody to pass them down to you. We're in a series in the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets. And they're not minor because they're unimportant. They preach a major gospel message, as we'll see again today. They're only minor because they're shorter. And so we're doing one prophet each week. Micah happens to be slightly longer than some of the other minor prophets. It's seven chapters, and so we'll be bouncing to and fro in the book of Micah. So it would be great, yeah, if you grab a a copy of the scriptures and feel free to use the table of contents to find the book of Micah, one of the prophets of the one true God speaking to his people Israel in the 700s B.C., ministering to a people like us who had a hard time staying focused on God and his goodness and his calling in our life. And so Micah reminds them and and warns them and asks them to repent and come back to God. This is what all the prophets do. But each has a unique way of reminding us who God is in all of this. It's not just about us getting it right. It's always that God himself continues to pursue us even while we are unable to pursue him. And and so we'll see that again in Micah with this great theme of God as our shepherd. Um, Okay, okay. Micah. Let's start right here in Micah 
chapter 1, verse 1, which says this. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, if you hadn't been with us, there are at this point two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people have had a civil war and they've divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the southern or the, the northern kingdom, Jerusalem the capital of the southern kingdom, and Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of the southern kingdom, the kings of Judah. And that is who Micah, like all the prophets, was ministering to, helping the kings to hear the voice of God and lead the nation in God's will for their life. And so we believe that Micah, as well as all of the 12 minor prophets, was not just speaking from his own intuition or his own wisdom, but he was truly speaking words from the Lord. And those words, whether they be words of warning or words of future prophecy, were ultimately shown to be truly the words of God. And we'll see that again in Micah, that he predicts the coming invasion of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, and those things come true. So his warnings are not heeded. People did not turn back to their God, and God allows for them to be scattered. Allows for them to be scattered. This is the coming judgment. So read here, chapter 1, verse 6. This is what Micah warns them. Therefore, I will make Samaria, the northern kingdom, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. Now, what you can probably tell here is one of the things that was happening in this time is that the people of God were worshiping things other than God. They were worshiping carved images and idols, things that God forbid his people to do because there is only one object of our worship and love, and that is God Almighty, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. He is our Savior. He is the only one worthy of our worship and affection. And so he will lay waste if we continue to worship other things. Now, that's the coming judgment that Micah warns of, and he'll warn of it several times in a row. There's seven chapters. This is sort of a compilation of uh, Micah's greatest hits. He, he will tell the people this again and again and again, and each time he will also give them a glimpse of hope, but we'll see this pattern. We won't have a chance to read all of Micah, but you can go back, and we always encourage people, the word of God is alive and active, and so read it yourself, even after you hear us preach a summary sermon like this on, on a book uh, of Micah, read it again and hear these themes coming up over and over and over. Coming judgment. Why? Because they have fallen short of a standard. Now, Look back here, chapter 1, verse 2. What was the standard that led to the judgment we just read about? It says this, Micah's first words. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy 
temple. Now, what's, what's going on here? Here's what Micah is saying. You haven't just fallen short of sort of worldly standards. You haven't sort of fallen short of comparison to your peers. What he's saying is the Lord God will be your witness. He will stand up, uh, stand up in front of us and he will be our standard to which we are judged. His righteousness, his holiness, he will be a witness against us. It's his holy temple. Now this is important because it's not what the world says is the standard for goodness and love and righteousness. It's what God says the standard is. It's not what I say the standard is unless I am speaking truth about what God has revealed it is. So we have to always remember that. It is not with the church you have a problem. It's not with your pastor that you have a problem. It's not with your neighbors that you have a problem. It's with God. He is the standard. He makes the standard. No one else. Now, what is that standard? Turn with me to Micah chapter 6, and we will see what God's standard is. And this is a very famous passage. Actually, let's start in verse 6, because we'll, we'll see here for a second what God's standard is not. Verse 6, 6-6. Six, six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high, who is my witness? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is all religious language. This is all doing the things of the law that the people of Israel believed that they needed to do to get right with God. Now, it's not those things are bad, but what we're about to see is God says, you cannot just do the external things if your heart is bad. Even giving your firstborn will not save you if your heart is not changed. So what is his requirement? What is his standard? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. God is good. He is the standard, and he has told us what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is his standard. That is what he has asked us to do. And when we fall short of that, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, judgment is coming when we fall short of that standard. And so what we have in the rest of Micah is uh, just a series of, you haven't done that, you've fallen short of the standard uh, that God has asked you to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God, you've fallen short of that. So we can just look at a few examples of this, of the failing of this standard of, of chapter six, verse eight. We can just look at a few examples of this. Turn here with, uh, well, actually stay in chapter 6. Look at verses 3 to 5. It says this, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? This is God speaking to his people. Answer me, for I brought you, that's God, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, 
O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Here's what's going on. God is reminding them of his loving kindness for them. He's saying, have you forgotten what I've done for you, how I've already saved you so many times over? Have you forgotten? Have you failed to remember what truly loving kindness is, what steadfast love looks like, what covenant love is, and yet you return none of that to me? I saved you from slavery in Egypt, and then you go and you worship other gods. Look here, turn to chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, Do not preach, and it's in quotations. Thus they preach. One should not preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now here's what Micah's doing. He's quoting from what others are saying about his preaching because his preaching was one of a call to repentance, of a pointing out the injustices, the lack of loving kindness. And what's happening to Micah is the people are trying to shut him up. Verse 7, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? This is now Micah speaking. He's saying, if you follow what I'm saying, if you repent and do what I'm saying, does it not do good for you to walk humbly? Verse 8, but lately my people have risen up, again, uh, up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter winds, wind and lies saying, quote, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, end quote, he would be the preacher of this people. See what he's saying? You see, the prophets are like poetry, if you haven't figured this out yet. Sometimes you could just read it and you're not sure exactly what's going on. Hopefully we're explaining to you how to, how to read this and see what the message is. Here's what Micah is saying. He's saying, you want me to stop preaching because I'm preaching about your sin about your lack of repentance, about your idolatry, about your lack of justice, about your inability to walk humbly before your God, about the ways that you rob from people as they pass by, about your failure to teach the next generation of God's goodness and love. You want me to be quiet? You know what preacher you like here right now in Israel? You like the preachers that tell you to go party, have a great time, get it while you can. Live your youth. You only get one life. Those are the preachers you like to listen to. How far a cry from chapter 6, verse 8, to walk humbly. We want preachers who preach to us gain. 
not suffering and sacrifice for the love and mission of God. We want our preachers to tickle our ears. We want them to tell us how great we are. We don't want them to tell us to give of ourselves to the poor, to not seek our own gain or our own wealth. Think this is still happening today? We love preachers who preach to us of wine and strong drink for our good and not those of our neighbor, not those of justice and kindness and humility. They've failed the standard. And we could go on and on and we could read about the way the rich were oppressing the poor and getting more and more rich at the expense of those who had nothing. We could read about that and you should go back and you should read this. And God, and, and God is telling the people through Micah, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Not my people. And because of that, I'm going to bring my judgment and I'm going to scatter you. To scatter who were my people to far off places. But as we've seen in all the prophets, that's not the end of what God tells his people. Turn with me to chapter 7 and we start to see the shift. And it's a shift that we actually see Micah making in iterations throughout the whole book. So we'll kind of go back and look at those highlights. But I want to start in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. We are deserving of God's wrath, of his judgment, because our transgressions are many, our justice is weak, our steadfast love is nowhere to be found, we are proud and not humble, We have failed the standard of God, but Micah ends like this. Verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, covenant love. He will again have compassion on us He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like this? Micah says, our God. That even though we don't deserve any of his loving kindness because he has promised it to us and we are his people, he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He will gather to himself this remnant that he speaks of. This is how he will enact his love. So I want to just show us a few of the verses where we see this remnant. So go back to chapter 2. After Micah has talked about the preachers that we love, those that tickle our ears, verse 12, 
But here, even now, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, and I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So in one sense, he's saying, I'll gather you home, but he's just reminding you, you're like a noisy multitude. (laughs) You're still sheep. But he will gather them back together the remnant of Israel, those who are truly God's people. He will bring them like a shepherd back into his fold because he is a God like this. Flip over, flip over here. Uh, Verse four, or sorry, chapter four, verse one. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come. This is the remnant. And and here, here the book of Acts, which we preached just not that long ago, this is people from all nations coming back into the fold of God, into the family of God, as God assembles them back. Here, look at chapter four here, verse six. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. You see, he's not just gonna take the great peoples of the earth to make his people, he will take even the weak the oppressed, the lame, and gather them and make them into his strong nation. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord. What are you saying here? God's remnant, God's people become a refreshment to the rest of the world, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. So, while God's waiting to gather his remnant to himself and at the end of days, while we are still scattered, but yet a peoples of God, a remnant of God scattered, we are to be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to the cities that we live in, a blessing to Seattle, even though we know this isn't our final destination. This isn't our final peoples, but we are to be like a dew to them, like showers, even before the shepherd calls us back. You hear this language of the remnant? Now look with me, chapter 7, verse 14. It is the call of someone who does the gathering. Look at this. Chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Who's the shepherd? Who is this person that God the Father seems to be talking to? Who is the one that will gather all the remnant, all the sheep who have been scattered? Who is the gatherer? Who is the gatherer? This is beautiful. Look at chapter 5. Again, you might not see all this because it's, it's poetry and it's prophecy put together and it's not always in the order that you know, we would like. It's not a textbook here. But he actually tells us, Micah, where this shepherd will come from. And Now this might be a very familiar verse to you. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. But you... 
O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Why do you think the people believed that the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem? Why do Christians say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? He was born in Bethlehem, and it was predicted here that that's where the Messiah would come from, from the town of David, from Bethlehem, from the line of the great King David himself. And this here is what we pick up in the New Testament when we read about Jesus' birth story. But he is fulfilling this prophecy that the shepherd of God's people the shepherd of the flock, he will come from Bethlehem. And I believe that this speaks of Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, who lived a sinless life, the life that we could not live, and died a death on the cross that we should have died, and absorbed upon himself the wrath of God and then three days later rose from the dead. And Micah's talking about him right here. Micah's telling you that there is one coming who shall be their peace to the ends of the earth. He is the great and the good shepherd. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, are you sure maybe we're not stretching too far here? You say, maybe we're just reading upon Jesus things that were in the Old Testament that seem to fit nicely into our idea that we want him to be the Messiah. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus himself, again and again and again, will call himself the great shepherd. He will refer to himself as the fulfillment of the prophecy of being the, the, the Messiah who has come to gather God's people back together by his voice. So I just want to show us some of these verses. Go ahead and throw the first one up there, Kurt. John 10 says this, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Next verse. Jesus again speaking. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So what does a shepherd do? See, Jesus has identified himself as the good shepherd, the shepherd that Micah predicted would come and gather the remnant. What does the shepherd do? Jesus uh, explains to us in the same passage. He says this, who, He who is hire, a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am not a hired hand. I own these sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, it's not just that Jesus gathers his people, that he, by his Spirit, calls them by name and says, return to me. That's one of the things that a shepherd does. The shepherd calls out by his voice and his sheep hear the sound of their shepherd's voice and they return home. That's one of the things that Jesus does, even for us. If you're sitting here today and you've heard that call to come back to the fold of God, that is the voice of your shepherd calling you, say, come home, come back to me. But it's not just that. That's not the only thing that a shepherd does. A shepherd also, when his sheep are in danger, will lay down his life for their life. A wolf attacks. A shepherd doesn't just say, hey, you know what? Go ahead and take them. There's more sheep where that comes from. He stands and he rustles. And he gives up his life for his own. And one of my favorite passages uh, in all of Scripture is Matthew 23, 20, uh, 37 through 39. And Jesus is using different imagery, the imagery of a mother hen, but with the same idea. A mother hen who gathers her chicks to herself. This is what Jesus says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Often the prophets like Micah were not liked very much as we just read. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what Jesus is saying. You got to understand the imagery here because what would happen is in this part of the world, there would oftentimes be brush fires that would sweep through the valleys of this long grass and, 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 and sweep through very fast. Like you, you, you just think of some of the forest fires we've had just this last summer. They come through really fast, and what would happen is people would go, and they, after the fire, they would, they would walk through the fields, and they would see these little mounds that looked look like just little mounds, and they'd say, what's going on? And they'd go to the mounds, and, and underneath what they would find is these baby chicks who had survived the wildfire sitting under a pile of ashes. And what had happened? The mother hen had gathered her chicks and spread her wings over her children. And the fire consumed her, but they escaped and lived. That's what Jesus is referencing. He's saying, for all of those who, who say of Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the good shepherd who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the Messiah born in Bethlehem, predicted to come and gather his chicks, his children, his sheep. If we say that of him, he puts his arms over us 
And the fire, the wrath of God due for our sin consumes not us, but Jesus Christ on the cross. And we experience resurrection life because of his sacrifice. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for those who he has gathered to himself. And Micah is predicting it here. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. Even those who have seemed to run far and wide and been scattered by the effects of sin, whether it's their own sin or sin against them, they are far and wide. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, by his spirit, is sending out his voice and calling all of his children back to him so that he might put his arms around them and be their shepherd and their sacrifice that they might experience life forever with him. That's the minor prophet of Micah preaching a major gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it the most terrific thing that you've ever heard? Who is a God like this? Who is a God who will cast our sin into the depths of the sea? Who is a God like this who has sworn a covenant oath of steadfast love to the fathers of faith of old and does not grow tired of faithfulness but continues to love us with compassion again and again and who treads our iniquities underfoot by the cross of Christ. Who is a God like this? Who is a God like this? He is our God. He is our God. And if you are trusting in this God, if you have heard the voice of Christ and you have come back to him and you are clinging close to the cross and huddling underneath your shepherd, you will experience life to the full. Maybe not right now in this moment, but there is life coming to you when God cleanses his earth and recreates the new heavens and the new earth and gives us new, resurrected, clean bodies free from sin and the effects of sin and the power of sin. And it's a great promise and it's wonderful. So I want to read here chapter 7, verse 8. And, and every Christian should memorize this verse, particularly when you are hearing the slings and the arrows of the enemy coming at you and accusing you of worshiping a God and saying, where is he and why hasn't he acted and, and why is he letting this happen to you? Here are the words that every Christian should memorize. Chapter 7, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, because I shall rise. When I sit in darkness... Don't mock me, is what he's saying, because the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and my cause as my witness. Remember back to the very beginning? Jesus becomes our witness, not of our own righteousness, but as our substitutionary righteousness as he stands before God the Father and says, he's with me, she's with me, and I've taken care of their sin and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light 
I shall look upon his vindication, and look at this, then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Do you believe that, friends? That whatever you're experiencing, whatever the Lord is for right now, for whatever reason that we cannot understand allowing us to go through, whatever sin is causing you pain and sorrow, do you believe this to be true? That there is coming a day when those who mock you for worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, will look with their own shame because they see what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. That day is coming. And it doesn't mean that it's easy to wait for that day. It doesn't mean that the heartaches of this life aren't real and don't cause us to cry out and lament and scream to God, help us, please. It just means that he has helped us. He has covered us. He has taken upon himself our judgment. Praise be to that God who is like no other. He is our king and our shepherd, and he loves us more than we could ever know. Let's pray. Who am I, God, that you would send your son, Jesus Christ, to be my substitute, to take upon him the wrath due my sin. Who am I? What am I? Woe is me. I am not worthy. I do not deserve. I have fallen short of your standard. I do not seek justice. I do not walk humbly. I do not replicate your loving kindness in this world. God, who am I? I am your child. Sinful. Undeserving. But nonetheless, I'm your child. And you've died for me before I could even ask you to do it. God, help me to know that. Help me to see that as clearly as I possibly can with these fogged glasses, with this dim light. Help me to know that you are my shepherd and that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not alone. I am not alone. I am not alone. For you are my guide. For you are my Savior. For you are my joy. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, my all and all. In his name, I pray. Amen.